build an opposition on the stony soil of South African democracy was in and of itself a very important thing. And without that, there wouldn't be any meaningful multi-party democracy here, as is proved elsewhere in our rather difficult neighborhood for democracy in this region and this continent. So I think that, you could say, mission accomplished. Tony Leon once occupied what is surely one of the most challenging opposition posts in the democratic world. From 1999 until 2007, he was leader of the opposition in the National Assembly of South Africa, dominated since the end of apartheid by the African National Congress. Leon led South Africa's Democratic Party and the Democratic Alliance, which superseded it from 1994 until 2007. After retiring from politics, he became South Africa's ambassador to Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. His latest book is Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Tony Leon from his home in Cape Town. Tony Leon, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you very much, Andrew. Let's start at the start. I think it seems like a logical enough point to do that. Your birth in 1956 into a South Africa uh, very different to the South Africa it is now. Can you recall your beginning of understanding that South Africa was just not like other countries? Yeah, I grew up in quite a political household. My parents were active in liberal causes, which were in and of themselves quite unusual, even though I grew up in a uh, very, very uh, conservative place, Durban in Natal as it was, and very much the, called the last vestige of the British Empire in South Africa. And uh, we, we were at a young age quite uh, conscientized by our folks that there was this apartheid system that had started and segregated people. And we were my brother and I were were made aware that this wasn't a natural or even a humane system and that there was something fundamentally unjust about it. So, But that perhaps was just because of the parental influence rather than the fact that most whites were behind a wall of happy ignorance, living very comfortable lives uh, in very good weather and with all amenities. So that was perhaps a little unusual. And I owe my parents that debt of gratitude. It's striking when you read about that period of opposition to apartheid that the amount of it that there was among South African whites seems to have been disproportionately among Jewish South African whites. Did, did that seem like a thing to you at the time? And if so, where do you think it came from? Well, I think it's true. And certainly in the more revolutionary side of things, uh, in the ANC and so on, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, the whites who were in the top structures of the ANC were, in fact, Jewish. I think a lot of it had to do with the origins of the Jewish community in South Africa. They were refugees from the Pale of Settlement in Russia, and then from Eastern Europe and the Baltic states like Lithuania, and quite a lot of them arrived here uh, very poor, and also with very searing experiences of oppressive life. So I think that gave an a sense of identity with oppression in South Africa as they received it. But on the other hand, you know, most Jews in South Africa were white in the first instance rather than Jewish. And the material conditions of life for whites in South Africa during apartheid were astoundingly high. So I, I think Jews identified largely with opposition causes, but uh, most of them weren't prepared to dismantle the system 
which enabled them to live a reasonable life. I'm always interested in those moments, those great pivotal moments in, in history at which people begin to understand that something major is actually happening. It's because it can sometimes seem sudden, but it usually isn't. There's quite often a moment. And if we think about the end of apartheid, which for much of your life to that point must have seemed this absolutely uh, monolithic, perhaps even insuperable fact of life. Was there a particular point you can recall thinking, I think this is all going to come down. I think everything is going to change. Oh, I can even give you a date and a time. It was the 2nd of February 1990. It's about 9.30 in the morning. It was my first day in Parliament. And F.W. de Klerk, the president, then made this monumental speech, which he did in a rather loyally undramatic way. But he signaled in one 40-minute speech that the apartheid system had come to an end. Although he did try, without success, to reform the system without fundamentally surrendering it. That's what happened. And I realized listening to that, although it had all been in my own party's manifesto, negotiating with the ANC, unbanning all the political activists and so on, that you could, the genie was now out of the bottle. There'd been a lot of false dawns before then. And it's, although the history has been rewritten since with the ANC saying it was courtesy of us, not de Klerk. The truth is de Klerk had all the power, the state power at that time. He had the constitutional power and he turned 350 years of history on its head in one speech. And I knew it would never be the same again. And nine days later, I stand in the Grand Parade outside uh, this Cape Town City Hall when Mandela was released, which took hours to happen. And the crowd was surging backwards and forwards and pressure coming from the sides. Nelson Mandela emerged from his long nightmare as a simple man walking his way to freedom accompanied by his wife, Winnie. But his release meant probably more to the whole world than to the man himself. In an unprecedented move, state-controlled television beam Mandela's release live into the homes of millions of South Africans. The factors which necessitated the armed struggle still exist today. We have no option but to continue. We call on the international community to continue the campaign to isolate the apartheid regime. And I realized that the transition from apartheid to democracy, which wasn't yet cited, was going to be very bumpy indeed, and that proved to be the case. So I really think those were extraordinary days, maybe nine days that changed South Africa between de Klerk's speech on the 2nd of February 1990 and the release of Mandela nine days later. Do you recall personally feeling, you know, however pleased you might have been by that, any amount of trepidation about what was going to happen now? I, I mean, I ask because I've spoken to uh, many white South Africans who can remember that period, and they were, they've all generally said they were pleased that apartheid was ending, that they recognised that it was unjust, but there was a moment of just concern about, well, what next? Oh, look, there were many moments in that transition. Bear in mind, four years is a quite a long time to have a political transition. I mean, most revolutions happen overnight or a matter of weeks, days, but this was a four-year period where it was, in the true sense of the word, Andrew, an interregnum. The old was dying, but the new had not yet been born. 
And there were many moments. I, I was involved in the constitutional negotiations, which were held near Johannesburg International Airport, a place called Kempton Park. And when the extreme right wing invaded that negotiation chamber with an armored car, and you thought, wow, well, you know, can the center hold here? There was extraordinary levels of violence in, in the black townships, some fueled by the state, some fueled by the ANC, some fueled by their arch uh, foes, the Encarta party of Butlesi. And uh, strange enough, I was in London on Easter Saturday, 1993, and I got a telephone call and the, you know, and the call, oh, oh, for call, wouldn't have cell phones then, and so I had to go to a ticky box. And I was told that, you know, Chris Harney, who was the leader of the Communist Party and a senior ANC figure, had just been assassinated by apparently and proven later to be right-wing whites activists. And it then seemed that the country was poised on, you know, the edge of a volcano and there were huge internal eruptions, but Mandela calmed that situation, as he so often did. And, and so it was, you know, there, there were moments, there were, there were days, there were weeks when it really looked so it could go off the rails, and it didn't. And a lot of that has to do with the, the leadership of Mandela and de Klerk on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the push towards a settlement was so great that even the extremist forces who were outside of the mainstream could not derail it. On the question of Mandela's leadership at this point, and I'm, I'm sure it's something you've thought you've had cause to think about a lot since then, where do you stand on the idea that the relatively, compared to what it could have been, peaceful transition that South Africa had to democracy, the degree to which that hinged on the not at all certain survival of one man of 27 years in a South African prison, if there isn't a Nelson Mandela alive and reasonably healthy at that point, do things go completely differently of necessity? Well, you know, to use that famous African expression, yarn, yeah, yes, no. Uh, the ANC actually had quite a significant depth of leadership and some of it at a very senior level, so... Aside from Mandela, there were people obviously not as globally known or even locally well known like uh, Walter Sisulu and Governor Mbeki, the father of Tom Mbeki, who'd been released just before Mandela had been, who arguably could have stepped into the Mandela shoes. But uh, whether they would have had Mandela's almost preternatural instincts, and I've written about it in my book, I wrote one about Mandela in my more recent book, Future Tense, that Mandela had, had a genius for moments of reconciliation for reaching across the aisle, which obviously helped the situation, but he was also a pretty tough-minded party politician. So, you know, he, he had that unusual combination of, you know, partisanship coupled with statesmanship. So I think that was a big factor. It certainly wasn't the only factor. I think the other factor, which tends to get written out of the story, is de Klerk, because, you know, and as we've seen this in many other conflict situations in the world, for every Mandela to succeed, you needed a clerk on the other side. It's not a unilateral act, because there really are two centers of power. There's the outgoing power center, which has all the formal power, and then there's the incoming power center, which Mandela represented, which has the mass support, but doesn't yet have the formal structures of power. And if those two are in constant collision, Mandela and de Klerk did not get on at all well, but they, there was a meeting of minds at some crucial moments then I'm not sure you can achieve the kind of settlement that South Africa obtained in 1994. 
That first real election in 1994, your party wins seven seats out of the 400 in the new parliament. Did it feel strange or even ironic to you at that point to be perceived as basically a white party? Yes. It was, in fact, someone wrote about, I wasn't the leader. I only became the leader after that electoral disaster. So we had nowhere to go but up after that poor performance. But um, someone called the Liberal Contribution South Africa ironic victory because the terms of settlement were stamped Liberal Democrat, but the actual party representing the rather uh, feeble flame of Liberal democracy here had almost been wiped out in that election, getting just under 2% of the vote nationally. So that was the irony of the victory. And, I, you know, it was almost inevitable that, that, that the DA or its predecessors had stood for a, a set of principles which in and of themselves were the basis of a settlement, but they weren't seen as being very helpful in protecting the core interests of either side, the minority or the majority. That was better left to the white nationalist party and the black nationalist party. And so it came to pass until the DA or its predecessor could reinvent itself over the next five years by providing pretty strong opposition inside the new parliament we were not uh, likely to you know, rise further politically, but indeed we did, or have done over the last few years. Is it right that President Mandela, as he then was, offered you a cabinet position in 1997, I think? Yes, he did, and it was a very, that was a very tempting offer. And, and, and Mandela and I had a lot of discussions about it, and I got on exceptionally well with Nelson Mandela as a person. I thought he was a remarkable president, but we had decidedly different and opposing views on pretty core matters. And Mandela said, look, after the National Party left the government of national unity, it was very important that a party like mine came in. And so we had these discussions. And I said to President Mandela, one of them, I said, well, you know, I'm not sure my supporters would uh, necessarily think it's a good thing for me to be in the government because uh, sometimes we disagree with you. So what are going to be the terms of trade? In other words, if we disagree with you in cabinet and uh, we, we want to signal that disagreement outside, is that possible? And he responded with, with a most telling uh, example. He said, no, no, Tony, we must face the world with one face. And then he added, I thought, fat fatal for the cause he was advancing, just like Mugabe and Nkoma. Now, Mugabe, of course, was the president and en route to becoming the tyrant of Zimbabwe. And Nkoma had been leader of the most significant opposition element whom Mugabe had co-opted into the ruling party. And thereafter, multi-party democracy effectively disappeared in Zimbabwe, where it's remained in the deep freeze ever since, effectively. So I thought, wow. So the example Mandela is giving is the example that really could happen to South Africa that we become effectively a de facto one-party state. And it was in that example that I saw immediately that this would be a very tempting offer, but it would be fatal to constructing a robust democracy here. So I, with great respect, declined. Well, on that thought, you know, your party does improve dramatically from 1994. You win 38 seats in 99, 50 seats in 2004, and you are leader of the opposition from 1999 to 2007. Nevertheless, you are still going up against this, you know, extraordinary monolith, the African National Congress, as an absolutely dominant uh, ruling party. How easy was it to find the motivation to keep doing that? Because you can't surely have perceived yourself as a reasonable chance of becoming prime minister at any point. 
That's absolutely so. You know, I remember Lionel Jospin, who at the time was the Prime Minister of France, was here on a visit. And this is about 2004, after you know, another general election where we'd come second, but a long way behind the ANC. And Jospin asked me at our meeting, he said, well, tell me, Tony, he said, are you the leader of the opposition or leader of an alternative? And, and that was the question. So I didn't kid myself that the Democratic Alliance could become the government of South Africa. I did think we could win centers of power outside the state, and indeed we did, winning cities like Cape Town under my watch and later on Johannesburg and Pretoria and Port Elizabeth, although those have recently gone back. And I thought, you know, that that would be important, not just uh, to prove that opposition can exist in a governing form outside of the state, but in various cities and provinces, but also that uh, it would give new life to the concepts of federalism, which sort of exists in a rather reduced form in South Africa, and to give people the hope that they could aspire to something other than the diet of one party domination. And that has proven, although with uneven results, to be so. But I have to say that, uh, Andrew, the, the motivation I had, the rocket fuel, if you like, was that this was almost as important, which was to build a, an opposition on the stony soil of South African democracy was in and of itself a very important thing. And without that, there wouldn't be any meaningful multi-party democracy here, as is proved elsewhere in our rather... A difficult neighborhood for democracy in this region and this continent. So I think that you could say mission accomplished. Now for all my successes, and I've stood down some more than 10 years ago from the leadership of the DA and been doing other things since, the task is to try and still turn what is an opposition project into a governing project. And I'm not sure it's going to happen in, a, in any direct way. I think indirectly, although the DA, my party, has only got 23% out of the national support, I think because of all the fractures and divisions in the ruling party, there is every possibility, let's not put it stronger than that, that when the fracturing becomes a permanent political division within the ANC, which must happen because it is a group of irreconcilable elements, that that 23% that's occupied or owned by the DA, or rented from the voters, will become very valuable political real estate in some future realignment. And I, I think the history of politics in South Africa is really one of realignments in various ways, manners and forms. What's your read, though, on why the dominance of the ANC doesn't crack, especially in what has become known, uh, certainly of its corruption and of its mishandling uh, of various uh, events in South Africa's recent history? Is there just an incredibly deeply felt residual and, you know, frankly, given the history, understandable loyalty to the brand? In this book I've just published, Future Tense, I actually look at that quite closely because I think one of the hidden facts in South Africa, it's not necessarily a fact to celebrate, but it is a fact nonetheless, is that in the last general election here in 2019, the ANC only got 26% of the potential support available. In other words, millions of people had not registered to vote. You've got to register to vote here. And fully one third of the voters didn't pitch up to vote at all. So of the, although they seemingly got, you know, 57% of the votes actually in real potential voting terms is quite low. So I think there's a huge disaffection out of the political system entirely in this country, although that has its own dangers. And I think it's clear that ethnic voting patterns in South Africa are a very hardy annual and very difficult to crack. 
So if you perceive to be as the DA is the Democratic Alliance being a party of minorities, it's harder for people in the majority camp, the black African group, to vote for it. And conversely, it also pertains the other way. So increasingly, the ANC, which really made big efforts in the 1990s to be a multiracial national party in the best sense of the word, has almost entirely given up on winning white, Indian, and colored votes in South Africa. And that's probably very bad for not just race relations, but for multi-party democracy. On the other hand, nothing is permanent. And, and I think we don't know the effects of this pandemic. The South African economy has been almost completely devastated by the lockdowns and by the shocking nature of the government's response here, both on the faltering vaccines and the endemic corruption you mentioned. And, you know, at some point, people do cast around for an alternative. I reckon 30 years is about, in the modern world, about as long as a one party can continue to rule without challenge. And South Africa's 30-year period expires at the next election. So I think there will be some churn, and I don't think it will be good for the ANC. But, you know, we, we just don't know. To go back to your trajectory, after leaving Parliament, you become, uh, well, you accept the role of South Africa's ambassador to Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. What was it about that role that appealed and, and, and how did you prepare for it? Because that is, a, that is an extremely different way of approaching politics, isn't it? You're having to go abroad to represent the government you have spent the last considerable while opposing. Yes, well, this arose out of a conversation, dare I say it, with Jacob Zuma, who just come into the presidency. And uh, he uh, was, you know, suggesting he was a new broom. I had very fraught relations with his predecessor, Thabo Mbeki, who disdained any form of opposition, local or international, and was very much uh, icy in his disdain for anyone who disagreed with him. And since I was the leader of the opposition, our disagreements were frequent and quite fierce. Zuma was a very different kettle of fish at the beginning of his presidency, and he indicated he wanted to be a different sort of president. And so when we had a discussion and the issue of the ambassadorship came up, uh, he said to me, it's very important that South Africa be represented overseas, not just by people who are ANC. And I thought, well, that's entirely correct to suggest that my predecessor, Zat de Beer, who had been the leader of the party till I replaced him, would be a very good South African ambassador. He was internationally minded. He was extremely eloquent and intelligent. And Mandela embraced this idea and started appointing various people, including De Beer, as ambassadors who weren't from the ANC. And I think if you're going to have political ambassadors, South Africa has a lot of politically political appointments ambassadors, they should represent the diversity of South African politics. I have no problem in that regard. And secondly, on a rather limited menu of options I was given, I chose Argentina because it's, apart from being a G20 country with some very, very stark similarities with sort of misgoverned South Africa, it was also a region in the world, South America, where there was no controversies in the bilateral relationship. So I didn't think I would land up in a conflict of interest between what I thought was the right approach and what the government thought, which would have been the case if I'd gone to an EU country, which I was also offered. So, I, you know, I set out to do that, and I, I think we were quite successful by pushing up the terms of trade, by boosting tourism numbers, by very aggressively marketing South Africa 
in South America, which we did with some success. And I think that is the point. You're a salesman for your country, not for a political party. Sometimes it's very difficult to see the distinction in a one-party dominant system, but I was very careful to always draw that distinction. And uh, I think my ambassadorship, therefore, was reasonably successful. I mean, it's not altogether unheard of for potentially vexatious opponents to be offered ambassadorships quite a long way away. Are you sure President Zuma wasn't just trying to get rid of you? Well, I'd really got rid of myself because I had uh, left the opposition leadership and I'd just left Parliament. And I was also pretty, well, young, as relatively speaking. I was in my early 50s, so I, you know, I thought, well, I've still got quite a lot of energy. And uh, what can I do? So I learned a doing it in bad Spanish uh, across the world, but uh, it was a very exciting time. The other thing, we had the Football World Cup in South Africa in 2010, which is at the beginning of my ambassadorship. And if you have the good fortune to represent the host World Cup country in three football mad countries like Uruguay, Argentina and Paraguay, all three of which qualified for finals, then your job is made immeasurably easier in terms of consciousness raising. And so it was a very interesting and remarkable time. And of course, it was a very happy time for South Africa. And it's, you know, looking back now, we're talking about 2010 onwards, it was a very, you know, different time because things seemed a lot more hopeful than they do now. We've really reached pretty much further down the uh, track and it's towards a dirt track rather than a highway of hope and aspiration courtesy largely, but not entirely, by the man who made me an ambassador, Jacob Zuma. Just to go back to that ambassadorial role, though, before you set out on it, I mean, what preparation goes into that? Is there some sort of crash course they give you? <laughs> Three weeks to learn to hold a knife and fork, as my wife said. So we went on some course. Look, it was absolutely bewildering. And the biggest handicap I had is I didn't speak Spanish. I still don't. I speak a sort of... I can order very good food and wine in Spanish, and I can busk my way through a superficial conversation. But, you know, people who don't speak Spanish, who haven't lived in South America, do not understand how complete Spanish is. You really don't need English to get by there. You do need Spanish to get by there. So I think that if I was to give any advice to any aspiring ambassador, I'd say, throw away the rule book and just learn the language of your host country. And I didn't have the chance or the opportunity. We certainly didn't have the budget to do that all the time, so I sort of had to make do. The most important thing really was to just read about where I was going, and then I could deal with the politics quite easily. I sort of, I'd seen the musical Evita, so, and I'd read up on the Peronists, and, and you know, it, 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 it was very interesting, and the, the history was very accessible. The far more difficult part of being an ambassador to me actually wasn't dealing with a bilateral relationship, the which I was, was quite aware also of the multilateral and international aspects, it was actually the almost unfathomable levels of bureaucracy that I encountered both there and back home. And I'd never worked for the government before. I'd never been in a government department. I'd run the opposition, but I could do it on my, broadly, obviously, on my own terms, and we had quite an efficient operation. But, you know, I was hugely helped by a book which Matthew Paris, whom I'm a great admirer of, wrote with various diplomatic dispatches. And he, <laughs> there was a British diplomat who called all the bureaucratic form-filling as a form of bullshit bingo, to use his expression. <laughs> and I was involved in so much bullshit bingo that, I mean, my predecessor had these most perfect working plans and business plans and all this 
But in terms of the diplomatic function, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, complete obedience to every bureaucratic fiat actually gets you anything other than, you know, being highly regarded, you know, by the foreign office because you can fill in the form correctly. So that I found the most difficult part, strangely enough, was not the foreign language, the foreign place, the foreign culture. That was actually quite exciting. It was this relentless bureaucratic grind. And I knew, and I had various security audits and financial audits that I would be very watched because I'm sure there were plenty of people back in Pretoria who weren't happy I'd be man and best and were waiting for me to fall. So I had to be doubly meticulous. So that, that took its toll. Um, we are coming to the end of our time, and I just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned in the book, Future Tense, which you have been seamlessly, if I may say so, expertly plugging throughout this interview. And you're writing about that period, I think, around the mid-1980s onwards, in which a lot of white South Africans start packing their bags and leaving, quite a few of whom I remember meeting uh, in Australia, whose families had done exactly that. And Obviously, you state that you didn't. The question, I guess, then is why not? Because it clearly must have occurred to you as it was occurring to so many people around you. And you clearly understood that you had chosen a path which involved a certain amount of risk and that the future was far from certain. Why did you stay? It's very difficult to give the, the, the uh, a full answer on that, uh, because I suspect there are mixed reasons. I deep attachment to South Africa. I never really regarded myself as a white South African, although constantly reminded of it these days. I always thought myself someone who identified with the country in a, in a fundamental way, even though, you know, we were only three generations South African, as opposed to many others who've been here for seven generations or, you know, for 10 generations. So I did feel a deep attachment to place, a deep sense of familiarity. I, I felt that I could only really be myself here, although I had a huge amount of international exposure. Uh, as you say, a lot of my friends and family lived overseas and have lived there for a long time. But I felt somehow I could only express my identity in South Africa. And then I think the other reason was having got at a precociously early age, got so involved in politics and the political struggle such as it was, that it really became part of who I was. And I wasn't sure taken out of that uh, milieu I would ever be able to live a full and meaningful life. I don't want to sound pompous or platitudinous, but you know the relative risks and insecurity about South Africa, it's still a really remarkable country with some remarkable people. And I had a chance in my own way to make some kind of contribution here, which is not given to many people anywhere in the world. And I'm very grateful for that fact. And I think that one must also see what you can do to make sure it's on in the right place and in under the right hands to the extent you can influence those things. Tony Leon, thank you very much for joining us. That was Tony Leon, former South African politician and the former South African ambassador to Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. Tony's latest book, Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land, is available now in paperback. You've been listening to The Big Interview with me, Andrew Muller. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Emma Searle and also edited by Steph Chungu. Don't forget to subscribe to this and any of our other programmes on Monocle24. They can be found on iTunes, Spotify or, of course, at monocle.com. Until next time, goodbye and thank you very much for listening. <music>